All right. You guys ready for a little Zephaniah? Yeah, let's get to it. Why don't you grab your Bible, turn to Zephaniah chapter one. I like that story of little Timmy. The phone rang and um, he answered it and he said, hello. And it was one of those telemarketers, you know, these people that are trying to sell something. He said, uh, young man, is your father or mother home? And the little boy, Timmy said, they're busy. And, uh, and, and he said, well, where are you? Under the coffee table. <laughs> well, well why, why are you, where, where's the, are there other adults in the house? And the, the telemarketer started getting a little nervous, like what's going on with this kid? And what, you know, he said, are there other adults in the house? He said, the firemen. <laughs> he said, well, can you get one of them? They're busy. Who else is there? The police. Oh, now, now the telemarketer is really worried. And, uh, and he says, come on, you need to please, you know, little Timmy, get, get, get the police. He said, they're all busy. And he said, well, what are they doing? And the little boy said, they're looking for me. <laughs> uh, I like that. Zephaniah. The one who the Lord hides. That's what his name means. He's the one who the Lord hides. Now, by the way, I, I like the idea of being hidden in the Lord, you know, under the shadow of his wings. The Lord hides us. The Lord is a shield or a shade for us. And he covers us and hides us. Um, I love that because um, the idea of, when the Bible says, you know, through this name, Zephaniah, the one whom the Lord hides, it's also uh, translated as the one who protects. The hiding is also the protecting uh, of, of, of the person that the Lord loves. And that's what uh, Zephaniah's name means. And, um, and boy, as a guy who's got a heavy word, I, I think it's good to be hidden in the Lord. You know, when you're giving the message that Zephaniah gives, when you give messages that are heavy, uh, oftentimes people don't respond very well. And uh, I like that Zephaniah is hidden in the Lord in the shadow of his wing. I love that. Well, uh, this book, as we mentioned on Sunday, it's a dark and gloomy book to a lot of uh, people, but there's always in every book of the Bible, the hint of goodness and glory. And we'll see that in chapter three. Chapter one and two speaks of trouble that's coming, even sad and brutal and gloomy days. And chapter three starts to introduce the day of redemption or the day of joy. And we'll see that in chapter three. So let's dive right into it. Uh, here we, we start in chapter one, verse one. It says there, verse one, the word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of um, Amariah, the son of Hil uh, pardon me, His Hizkiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, if you've been going through the Bible with us, we have been uh, following a lot of these people. And some of these people you remember, you know, uh, Ammon, the son of uh, Manasseh, which was one of the most evil kings in the history of, of Israel. Um, do you guys remember Gedaliah? We gave him a nickname. Anybody remember his name? Get a lifer, because he was a guy who needed to get a life, if you remember that. Uh, we, we learned about him. Boy, I. I wonder if I'm gonna get in trouble when I get to heaven with some of these nicknames. Um, uh, Cushi and Zephaniah, these names are all uh, Bible names that you can consider for your uh, kids if you're expecting. Uh, Cushi, uh, have a Cushi job or whatever. But um, anyway, uh, Josiah is probably the most noteworthy in, in this 
When it says, um, in, the, you know, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, the, um, this is when the Lord brought the word to Zephaniah. So he was a contemporary of Josiah. Now, Josiah was um, one of those amazing kings. Um, there, he started to reign at the ripe old age of eight years old, if you recall. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing because uh, at the age of eight, he began to reign. At the age of 16, he, uh, you know, com committed himself to serving the Lord. And by the age of 20, he'd remodeled and started to re restore the temple in Jerusalem. Like he, he started to get a lot done at a very young age. He was one of those can-do kind of leaders. But he also was famous for tearing down all the altars to Baal and all the, uh, you know, the corruption that had reached Jerusalem and Israel. Josiah is the one who uh, cleansed all that out and wiped it out. And um, the problem is though, if you read the whole story, Josiah had a, a life transformation uh, by the word. Remember when they were cleaning out the temple, Hilkiah and Shaphan, the priest um, and the scribe found the, the Pentateuch really is what it was. And they thought, what's this? And they got out this scroll, they're like, oh, wow, we forgot about this. Like the word of God was largely forgotten during that day, but they found an old scroll in the temple. So they bring it to Josiah and Josiah hears the word read into his ears and he rips his clothes thinking, oh man, what have we done by forgetting or losing the word of God? And so he was one who had the, the scriptures read in the ears of the people. And the people said, we will do what the word says. Now, there's something you should know about that story, by the way, though, that's interesting because that revival with Josiah, you could call it a revival. They tore down all the idols, right? I mean, it's a good revival. How long did it last? Well, the answer, 30 years. And then the people were right back to worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and all the other gods and goddesses of the Canaanites. How is it that somebody so radical as Josiah could transform such an amazing group, uh, amazing set of you know, actions with only 30 years of revival, and then it's right back to the old paganism. What happens there? I'll suggest something to you that I think we need to be praying about today. And that is, um, Josiah had a transformation in his heart, but the people just went along with Josiah. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean, Brett? Well, it's like this. It's like um, uh, Josiah really did, and I'll use this terminology, he tried to legislate morality. That's the problem. He said, you guys, we're gonna follow the word. They're like, okay, whatever. Whatever you wanna do, Josiah. But they hadn't had transformation. The people hadn't had a real conversion in their heart. They just were going along with this young king who said, we're gonna do this. And they said, okay, we'll do it. But they, they weren't really transformed themselves. This is something we have to be considerate of because today, um, you know, you gotta be careful because we wanna legislate morality. Um, and that's never worked throughout history. What needs to happen is not as much legislation as regeneration. People need to be saved. People need to be transformed by the Lord and their hearts need to be changed. That didn't happen during the time of Josiah. And so that's the problem with this time period. Even Zephaniah's prophecies, that's why they would come out so heavy during the time of Zephaniah, same time as Josiah, because there was not a real transformation of their hearts. Um, maybe we'll even talk tonight about, you know, some of these abortion laws. It's interesting how both sides are scurrying in our country right now. Blue states, red states, you know, um, some states are saying we're going to protect abortion. Uh, others are saying, man, we're not going to, we're going to minim minimize or even try to get rid of abortion altogether. And, and, you know, I have to admit, I get excited when I hear about the, uh, the idea of shutting down abortion. That would be awesome. 
because it's murder. It really is murder. And, you know, biologically, we can go into all the arguments about why it's murder, but biblically, there's no question. Abortion is evil, sinful, and wrong. So you say, Brett, we need to legislate that. Well, you can, and we probably should, and, and we, we can try. But here's the problem, you guys. Um, people need their heart changed. You can go out and try to clean the fish before you catch the fish, but it doesn't work very well. You gotta catch the fish first. And that's been the problem with any of the legislating of morality throughout all of history is you can make the law, but until you see people's hearts changed, it's just gonna go right back like it did in the days of Josiah. And so that's something that we need to, so which one's the greater work? Preaching the gospel or marching in the streets with anti-abortion signs? I'll tell you what the better one is, preach the gospel. Because that's what changes people's lives and changes their minds. Um, then you can see transformation that'll be lasting and important. I'm not saying to not, uh, I'm, I'm always misquoted by people on stuff like this. Brett said he doesn't like legislating things about abortion. I didn't say that. Uh, and I'll vote and I'll do all that stuff. And I'm, I'm pro, you know, uh, some of these bills, you know, that, that they're trying to, you know, stop abortion or minimize it, uh, if you could even say that. I, I mean, I hate, hate even that term, you know. Um, Arizona's working on the 15 month, uh, not month. <laughs> what is it, 15th week. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, my gestation period, uh, hmm, gotta think about that. That's a different, different species. Anyway, <laughs> but no, 15 weeks. Uh, and you know, doctors could go to jail if they perform an abortion uh, um, earlier than 15 weeks. That's what they're suggesting or working on. And, and I'm, I'm glad we're trying to stop abortion. That's great. But I, I do think we really should not forget you got to change people's hearts. You can't just change the laws. That's an important thing. Well, anyway, we see that. We'll see that even more tonight as we get going. But uh, the days of Josiah, there was a pseudo revival is what I'm gonna call it during that time. Zephaniah was born um, in the latter part of the reign of Manasseh. That's when he was born, Zephaniah was. So that was the most wicked king in the history of Israel, Manasseh. And then, you know, um, Josiah's father was just a short reign king and then Josiah, and, and that's when uh, Zephaniah would prophesy. So somewhere around 650-ish BC is when uh, Zephaniah prophesied. Well, he goes on in verse two. He says, and I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of Kemarims with the priests. The, the key words here is the Lord says, I will consume, I will consume, I will cut off, I will cut off. He says that both of those twice, consuming and cut, cutting off. And remember, when we talk about the day of the Lord, which I already told you on Sunday, that's kind of the theme of this book, the day of the Lord. Um, there's a lot of this kind of language. And the question you have to ask yourself is, is he talking about the near application of this prophecy or the far application, the future, the end times? Or is he talking about both? That's what you kind of have to ask yourself as you're reading this prophecy of Zephaniah, because it, it's a dual fulfillment of prophecy. And you can see how both will happen. Did the Lord cut off man and beast from Israel? The answer is yes, it did happen historically. 
after, you know, um, you know, the Babylonians came and crushed Jerusalem, even after they came after 70 years of captivity and rebuilt and restored Israel and Jerusalem. But there, there was so many years where it was just in desolation. Um, and there's still evidence, by the way, of that uh, throughout the ages. When the Ottoman Turks came through and um, taxed people with trees, they cut all the trees down uh, in virtually all of Israel. It changed the actual climate of Israel to where it was dry and desert and barren. 150 years ago, if you went to Israel, it was, it was almost desolate. You'd find a few Bedouin tents with people, you know, living in these tents, uh, Bedouins, but, but largely uh, no animals, no people. Um, animals are starting to come back to Israel, um, but there's still a lot of species that are no longer there that were there during the Bible. Remember when David, he slew a lion and a bear, you know, like David, you know, did this, um, this amazing act, but how many lions and bears are in Israel today? Zip, zero, they're gone. Um, there's, um, there, there's very few animals. Uh, there's, there's some panthers, a few panthers in the Negev desert. Um, and once in a while, people will sight them, see them, a sighting of them. Um, there's the Ibec and some Hyrax type uh, animals and stuff. But, but largely Israel's just starting to come back with animal life. It was desolate and barren. And Mark Twain, when he was there, you know, over a hundred years ago, wrote all about his visit to Israel. He said, man, I, I didn't see man or shrub or animal for days as he was traveling through the Holy Land. Uh, he, that's an interesting read, by the way, Mark Twain's visit to Israel. That, that's an interesting uh, read. But be that as it may, that did happen, the desolation that's kind of talked about here. But it's gonna be perhaps even worse, if you would, during the, the, uh, the second uh, iteration of this prophecy of the day of the Lord uh, that we talked about on Sunday. I will consume man and beast, he says, um, and I will cut off... Um, the priests of Baal, uh, the remnant of Baal. The, the word there in verse four, the Kemarims, is an uh, interesting uh, study because there's not a ton written about the Kemarims. We do know they were priests of Baal, um, but these particular priests would wear dark, long black robes. They were sort of the goth dudes of that day. There, there was a darkness, kind of an evil darkness is sort of the idea uh, to these Kemarims. Um, and, um, and the Lord says, I'm gonna cut those guys off. Um, and can I just remind you that as Christians, and th this might hit some people the wrong way, but um, we are called to be children of the light. And, uh, and sometimes I, I wonder you know, about uh, sort of this, the, the thing where people try to have a darker demeanor. And um, I understand there's a, there's a, a, a lure to that, or a, uh, especially in our younger generations, like you know the whole goth thing that came and sort of went. Um, I, I, once in a while, I still see a goth kid running around. Which, but, um, but you know, think about that for a second. Why, why do we try to kind of go with a darker look when the Bible says, man, you are not children of the night, you're children of the day, children of the light. And um, I think that <clears throat> there is a funny thing that, Darkness uh, and evil always kind of goes more toward that, that darker look. Well, these Kemarims were known for their dark look, their dark demeanor. Um, and children of light, children of joy, that should be the Christian, the believer. I'm reminded, you know, Philippians chapter four, because um, you might say, well, I am a dark demeanored person. Well, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's not a suggestion. That's a command from God to be those who rejoice. Uh, well, what if I don't feel like it? Tough bananas. You gotta still rejoice. Well, what if I don't have anything to rejoice about? Well, if you're a Christian, which that's the, if you're not a Christian, then we have a whole bunch of other things. You can dress however you want, I guess. 
But if you're a Christian and you're saying, I don't have joy, well, you should because um, you're not gonna go to hell and you're gonna go to heaven if you're a Christian. That alone is a reason to rejoice. Um, if we've forgotten that, um, we need to remind ourselves of that. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Well, <clears throat> that's, that's the idea of these chemerims, these dark, long-robed, black-robed priests. The Lord says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut them off, the remnant of the Baal worshipers and what have you. Well, verse five, and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and, uh, and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. Now, those that are the worshiping the hosts of heaven, those are the, those are the guys, you know, um, studying the astrology charts and, and up on the rooftops looking at the stars, um, astral deities that they believed in in those days. It was paganism through astrology. And, um, and then Malcolm is another name for the God that we've talked about many times before in our study. M Malcolm is also called Moloch. Um, and the reason that one's so dastardly to us is because that's the one that they would um, build this big iron statue of, of Moloch or Malcolm. And his arms would be outstretched like this. But in his belly, they, if you went to the backside, there were these hollowed out areas where they'd stoke up these fires so hot that the iron arms would get to be almost like incandescent, red hot. And then they would think that they would please Moloch, the God, by, by uh, sacrificing their babies on the arms. They'd place these newborn babies on the arms of Moloch and sizzle them there and burn them in the valley of Gehenna of all places. Remember what Gehenna is called? What is it? Hell. There's a, there's a valley in Jerusalem. Right now it's a little city park and it's real pretty. And every time we drive by it, so there's the valley of hell, you guys. Um, that, that's, it's right there. Um, and it's all pretty now, but it was pretty ugly back in Solomon's day and in, in these people's day, because it was the reason they called it the Valley of Gehenna is because it was where they sacrificed babies um, to Moloch, or as it's called here, Malcolm. Um, isn't it interesting that these people swear by the Lord and the word Lord there, notice it's all capital letters. That means it's the word Jehovah. So these guys are two timers, man. They're, they're worshiping Jehovah. Yeah, 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 that's great. We worship the God of the Jews, but we're also worshiping Malcolm. Um, and this is you know, breaking some of the most fundamental things. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Um, there's, there's only one God that is to be worshiped. All others are false deities. And, and these people were playing games. They were worshiping Jehovah on one hand, but they were also studying the stars of heaven and also uh, worshiping Malcolm. Now, um, we, you say, well, good thing we don't do that anymore. Um, interesting, you know, there's still Christians that go around talking about what their sign is. Do you know that, that I think of what's your sign, man, back in the 60s or whatever, now when people talk about your uh, you know, sign, um, that's just astrology and there's real evil uh, origins in some of that stuff. And, and if you're reading the astrological charts or you're even messing around with it or dabbling with it, that's just loving Jehovah and playing with dark, evil stuff at the same time. Um, it's, just, it's just the way it is. I think we should run from anything that even is close to uh, anti-God or anti-biblical. Be careful with all the stuff that's out there. There's a lot of things that are seemingly innocent, but they actually are, are really quite ugly. Um, you say, well, good thing we're not worshiping Malcolm anymore. Oh, we're, we're worshiping Malcolm worse than ever today uh, through abortion. It's the same thing. 
They believed that they could be more prosperous by sacrificing their babies on the arms of this God. We believe we can you know, be more comfortable or blessed or you know, you're not ready for a child and you can have your sex, but, you, but if you get pregnant, oh, we can just abort the baby. Um, and we, we're doing it for the same reasons, um, only by millions and millions and millions. In those days, it was more by the thousands, 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 bad enough. But um, it's so tragic what's happening with um, abortion. And um, the hardness of men's heart on this one is so stunning that people think that somehow it's okay. And there's some states that are trying to argue right now for the idea of uh, being able to uh, abort a baby even after it's born, um, which we call that murder. That's actually a homicide or, uh, 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 you know, it's, it's tragic. Um, the hardness of people's hearts in one direction and then there's other people saying, wait a minute, just look at the biology of it. When does the heart beat? When does the baby start to feel? And when does it think? And if you really go with the biblical thing, um, life begins at conception. And the Bible's really clear on that. I think that um, the world is gonna answer for that someday. Uh, it, it, you mark my words. If the Lord should tarry, which I think at the time is short, but if, if he does come years and years from now, I believe there's gonna come a day where we're gonna look at, at abortion maybe even worse than the way we view slavery. You know how slavery, we think, how could we have thought that was okay back in the day? And how can the world have ever tolerated slavery? The whole world was into slavery. But now we kind of, we look back and go, that, that was evil. Well, I have a hunch that if the Lord tarries uh, long, there's gonna come a day just because of this, you know, just seeing it. We're seeing 3D imaging of babies in the mother's womb right now. And, you, and if you just have any sense at all, you realize, wow, that's, that's a little person that God is forming in the mother's womb. And uh, it's shocking that people try to just de deny that and call it fetal tissue. That's just denying science. Isn't it funny that the people that claim to believe in science are the ones who actually really don't? They're the ones who really do not believe in science. Bible says there will be those following science falsely so-called. Uh, that's what's happening today in so many topics, not just abortion, but that's one of them. So, um, so you know, um, you, you know, they sacrificed the babies in the in the valley of Gehenna. Um, let me make even a more horrifying uh, imagery of today. We sacrifice babies in the holy of holies. What do you mean, Brett? Well, what Paul said? Don't you know that your body? What, what, what about my body? My body, it's my body. No, your body is a temple to the Holy Ghost. And so if, if you are carrying a baby in your body, that body is a temple where that baby is being raised. And I believe there, the womb is a place where it should be the safest place on the planet, um, but actually is the most hostile place in our day. Um, now, I always have to say this because, um, because the, the statistics say one in three women have had an abortion. So there's, there's always this guilt. And when I talk about this, people are like, oh, you know, and they, they feel like they're getting, you know, smacked by their pastor about the abortion issue. Well, yeah, abortion is murder and it's wrong. And I'm gonna keep saying that over and over again. But I also need to remind you that um, as it turns out, abortion is not the unpardonable sin in the Bible. If you've had an abortion, um, praise be to the Lord. He can forgive all of our sins. And it's not just the, the young mother, it's also the young father that's guilty. I mean, there's, there's a lot of guilt that goes around with, with the sin of abortion, but it's not the unpardonable sin. The Lord is able to take our sins and forgive us. And man, if you confess your sins, what is he? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So if you're dealing with that, and that's, that's, that's perhaps the third tragedy, you know, that I see in abortion is um, the long, uh, you know, fallout that happens for the poor woman who had an abortion and Planned Parenthood didn't care at all about her psychology of the situation. They just said, oh yeah, get rid of the baby, it's great. You, you know, you can go on your life just good as new. But they don't talk about the psychology 10, 20 years later. That's where we as church ministry pastors have to come back and say, man, we, we've got to try to help these poor ladies that are still dealing with guilt and heartbreak. It happens, it happens like somewhere around 10 years more than ever I've noticed after an abortion has been performed, um, the, the poor heart of the woman that's, that's been broken. Um, and good news, the Lord is the healer of broken hearts. And he is the one who takes our sins and even our, our worst things. And he can, he can forgive us and, and give us a brand new start. I love that about the Lord. Well, uh, in the news, by the way, governor uh, of Colorado, Jared Polis signed a bill Monday uh, codifying the right to terminate a pregnancy without governmental restrictions into law. Uh, the new law states that every pregnant individual has a fundamental right to continue the pregnancy, to give birth or to have an abortion. And this is one of those, those laws that are very vague about when, how far in you can have a, 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 an abortion. Um, but uh, the legislation further asserts that a fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus does not have independent or derivative rights under the laws of the state stripping any rights from the unborn baby. That's, that's tragic language right there. That's the language of the bill. Meanwhile, in Arizona last week, Governor Doug Ducey signed a bill barring abortion after 15 weeks. Um, we also, this is the bill, we also affirmed Arizona's commitment to protecting the lives of preborn children with the signing of Senate Bill 1164. The bill prohibits a physician from performing abortion past 15 weeks gestation, except in a medical emergency, Ducey said in a tweet. Um, to me, even pre-15 weeks is equally tragic and uh, heartbreaking, uh, but, I know they're, at least they're trying to you know, curtail. And so I, I, I do applaud that. So all that to stay, um, uh, by the way, um, all this stuff that we're talking about, this is stuff they were doing back in those days. Uh, we just put little different twists on it, uh, but it's all the same kind of evil uh, paganism that they were doing back then. And by the way, this astrology, Mars was linked to Baal worship for you that are um, into uh, you know, knowing about what these guys were doing. They, the, the Baal people uh, followed Mars for some reason. But all that to say, the Lord says, I see all that and I'm gonna cut all that out. I'm gonna cut it off. That's what he says. Um, verse six, there's two people described here in verse six. And them that are turned back from the Lord and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired for him. There's two people. There's the people that are backslidden. They were once walking with the Lord, but they turned away from the Lord. And then the second group is those that had never sought the Lord or inquired of him, the, sort of the atheists that never believed. The Lord says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut all those people off. Interesting. Verse seven, hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God for the day of the Lord is at hand for the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. So now we, we have the first of seven mentions of the day of the Lord by Zephaniah the prophet. Um, he's talking about the destruction of Israel, but also the day of the Lord in the end times, both. Now, the big question here is you'll see different commentaries talk about who the guests are that are being invited here um, in, in verse seven. The Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, he hath bid his guests. And you'll hear two totally different uh, interpretations. One is these guests are people uh, 
uh, that are Jews that are his guests that he's calling to be the sacrifice. Um, and it's kind of a sinister, brutal interpretation of that. But in some ways you can see that in the book of Zephaniah, that, that the Lord's saying, I'm gonna wipe out some of the Jews who have been these pagan, uh, Baal worshiping, Moloch worshiping uh, people. So it's like the Lord's inviting the guests so that they can be the sacrifice. Others say, no, 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 it's the opposite. Um, when you look at the word guests there in the original Hebrew, um, the Hebrew word is uh, his called ones or the people that were called um, or bidden, um, you know, or invited. And so uh, you might say, and this is what some people say, these are actually the people that are doing it right. These are the people that are repenting during this time of judgment. Now you can make that case because we know the way the day of the Lord is gonna roll out. We talked about this on Sunday. When the tribulation period kicks into gear, the Jews will be saved in the middle of that tribulation when the abomination of desolation happens. Remember the coming world leader is gonna set himself up to be worshiped in Jerusalem. And then the Jews will say, we've been duped. And they'll flee to the mountains of Moab, which is probably Petra. Remember that whole story? Um, so some say the, the, the tribulation saints along with the Jews are the ones that'll be sort of invited or called um, to, uh, to, uh, to the Lord. So there are two very different interpretations and uh, I'll leave it to you. I like to lean on the, the any, anytime I can think about the graciousness of the Lord, because um, that's something the Bible says over and over again. The Lord is merciful, his mercy endures forever, his grace is sufficient. So I, I do, whenever I can, I'm gonna try to think, okay, he's talking about the bidden guests. Those are the ones he's inviting to be saved that would turn and follow the Lord. The, the, the problem is during Zephaniah's time, there weren't a lot of those people at all uh, in the Babylonian invasion part. But in the tribulation time, there will be a lot of those who will turn to the Lord and uh, they'll have the seal of God in their forehead. Remember that? So anyway, uh, you, can, you can do further research on that and see what you think. But verse eight, uh, oh, um, verse eight says, uh, and it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. So this is kind of the, it, it furthers that first notion of chapter, chapter one, verse seven, that he's inviting the princes and the kings to be part of the sacrifice because of their evil. Um, and he's gonna punish them for that. So some would connect verse seven and eight that way. Um, but the, the, the princes there are the judges or the political leaders of Israel. The idea along with the, the princes, the king's children and what have you. And the Lord says, those that are clothed in strange apparel. <laughs> what's that? Are, are they shopping at Urban Outfitters or what? Well, like, what's the deal? Where are they shopping? <laughs> um, well, um, who knows? It, it, but it, it, it means that they're, they're, they're probably more into their apparel than they are in the Lord. That's, that's kind of the idea, that they're dressed and they're more about their clothing uh, and how they look than they actually care about their relationship and situation with God. Um, by the way, I love that um, when you become a believer, you're robed in righteousness. Don't you love that? You get a new bit of clothing. Um, you don't wear the strange apparel. You, you get a, a, a garment of linen. The Bible says that when Christ returns, he's gonna come with 10,000s of his saints and they're robed in fine linen. 
Linen speaks of righteousness in the Bible. So these um, fancy garments, the strange apparel, probably speaks of their wicked deeds and their sinfulness and what have you. Um, and by the way, don't you love it? You know, First Thessalonians, uh, I'll remind you what we talked about on Sunday. Um, For God hath not appointed us to wrath. This, this is more of that, um, that idea that he's invited us as guests to the banquet table, if you would. Um, he's not appointed us wrath to, to obtain salvation through Jesus who died for us. Whether we wake or sleep, should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even also as you do. So e- even when we're reading these horrible things about the wrath of God and the day of the Lord, don't forget, we are not appointed to this. So if you're starting to get a little uneasy and your blood pressure's rising as we're reading some of these, the Lord's gonna you know, punish all these people. Uh, if you're a believer, you are not appointed unto his wrath. The wrath that was meant for you, um, Jesus bore on Calvary. And that's the end of that discussion. Praise the Lord for that. Well, um, it goes on in verse nine. It says, in the same day also, will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate and a howling from the second and a great crashing from the hills. Howl ye inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down all they that bear silver are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Interesting uh, person the Lord hunts down here at the end of verse uh, uh, 11 and 12. The person that's sitting around, "Ah, the Lord's not, he's indifferent or apathetic. The Lord's not gonna do good or bad. Um, there are people that kind of take that attitude with the Lord. Oh, who cares? The Lord's never done anything in all these years, so he's not gonna do anything. And the Lord's saying, I'm gonna hunt those people down. That's this idea of settling on your lees. That, that's a figure of speech. Um, you know, the, the people that made wine, the way they did it is they'd pour the wine into pots and they'd let the lees in the wine settle to the bottom. Um, the, the lees would cause the wine to sort of get bitter. If you just left them there, uh, they would get uh, bitter and the wine would even get, if, if you left it long enough, sort of syrupy. So what they would do is they'd pour the wine into a vessel, let the lees settle, and then they'd pour into another vessel and then let the, the little lees settle in that one. And they, they'd pour from vessel to vessel and that was their way of purifying the wine to keep it clear, not syrupy, uh, crystal clear, and also not bitter, taking on the taste of the lees. And so there's a phrase that's used in the Bible of resting on your lees, um, or settling on your lees. In fact, Second Kings chapter, um, uh, not, pardon me, not Second Kings. Um, the idea of um, settling on the lees is talked about in Jeremiah 48, verses 11 through 13. The same phrasing, same idea of, you know, what Jeremiah says is the same thing that Zephaniah is saying. The Lord is not into apathy. Uh, and men just say, oh, the Lord's indifferent. He's not gonna do anything. That's the heart of a lot of Christians today. Uh, things have gone on the way they've gone forever and the Lord's not gonna do anything. Why pray? Why sing praises? Why go to church? It's all the same. That's an apathetic attitude. And, and here the Lord says, 
Um, I'm coming after you. That's what he says in verse 12. Um, How ye the inhabitants of Maktesh. What's Maktesh? The word Maktesh is actually um, the marketplace. Um, um, And also, uh, you know, people that were wealthy with silver, they're gonna come into play here in a second. Will the silver and their money, their gold help them during this time? We'll see about that in a second. But the idea is um, the fish gate here uh, is also known, does anybody know what's another name for the fish gate in Jerusalem, anybody? Yes, the Damascus gate, um, which is a major gate in Jerusalem even to this day. Um, every time we go to the Damascus gate uh, in Jerusalem, I have to say, you get a little, it's a little tense there. Um, uh, in fact, some people say they don't even recommend that you go see the Damascus gate because that's where the Palestinians kind of hang out there. And, um, and that's always where trouble starts when stabbings or, um, and, and even this week, uh, by the way, uh, Israel Hayom article, um, the uh, big, big deal happened there a couple days ago on Sunday, actually, the, um, uh, um, the visit to the Damascus gate um, by uh, Lapid. Uh, it's it's uh, Israel Hayom article. Hamas warns Israel will pay for FM Lapid's visit to Damascus Gate. I mean, this is interesting. This is a Jew saying, I want to go to the Damas- Damascus Gate and see it. Um, Arab media characterized the visit as one which uh, Lapid stormed the Bab Almud Damascus Gate area, um, meaning he dared to set foot there. Gaza's ruling uh, Hamas terrorist organization, which is backed by Iran, warned that the storming of the Damascus Gate by the foreign minister of the Zionist enemy, Yair Lapid, uh, is a dangerous escalation and the occupation will be responsible for its consequences. We and our people pledge to protect Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, It was the second night in a row that Arabs rioted in the old city of Jerusalem as night fell and the second fast of the Islamic holy month of Ramadan drew close. Um, One time we took an Israel trip uh, and we went there during Ramadan. And it's a little hard because they they don't use our calendar. So you almost, you have to really look it up. When's Ramadan this year? But uh, heads up, don't go to Israel during Ramadan. It's it's not a good time uh, for, uh, there's always unrest like this, but also a lot of the places that were run by these Arab guys and they have to fast all day. So they're all really grouchy. And, um, and they also close, as soon as their, um, the sun goes down, they close all their shops because as soon as the sun goes down, they can eat. So they close everything early during Ramadan. So uh, it's, it just makes it hard to get stuff in. And so we've just said, we're not going during Ramadan. Um, but uh, the, the Arabs are much more grouchy during Ramadan, I've noticed. Uh, um, so uh, we avoid that time. But that's what's happening as, as, as they're um, you know, nearing Ramadan, this Damascus gate has become this real point of contention. Um, I've seen fights there uh, with, with my own eyes. I saw a guy um, get nudged by a, on a motorcycle, get hit by a car, sort of glanced, and the motorcycle got off and started pounding the guy with his helmet. Uh, like, <laughs> it's crazy stuff that you see at the Damascus Gate. Um, but it, it, it's funny because here it is in the Bible uh, as also a, a point of contention. Lord says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be there at that fish gate or the, uh, the Maktesh marketplace. Um, and the Lord says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with those punished men that are settled on their lees. Well, um, by the way, are you one who settles on your lees um, spiritually and says, ah, the Lord's gonna do what he's gonna do? Um, I, hear, I hear that out of you when people say, jokingly, and I know they're, they're probably well-meaning, but when it comes to Bible prophecy, they say, oh, Bible prophecy, you know, Brett, you're a pre-tribber, uh, there's other post-tribbers, I'm a pan-tribber. 
Well, what's a pan drummer? Oh, it's just all gonna pan out. <laughs> uh, can I just say, that's dumb. If you're a pan drummer, repent. Because the Bible doesn't say be ignorant about the end times. The Bible says one of the things in two of the areas, do not be ignorant about the end times. And it's funny how people just sort of laugh. And I, I think that apathetic attitude, actually the Lord actually does not like that at all. Um, don't be apathetic when it comes to spiritual things like pan tribber or, or uh, uh, who, who needs to pray? God is sovereign, so we don't need to pray. Well, the Bible says pray. And it says you have not because you ask not. So you're missing something there, my friend. If you're saying prayer is not important because it's all gonna work out and God's gonna do what God's gonna do. That's this attitude of these people. And the Lord says, uh, no. Um, but we should be stepping out and serving the Lord and not being resting on our lees and just saying, ah, oh, whatever. We need to actually be busy about the work of the Lord and doing what the Bible says. Um, uh, I'm reminded of Proverbs, you know, um, that talks about how where no oxen are, the crib is clean. Um, uh, but, uh, but you know, um, you know so, and, and by the way, I knew what this was like because I was, grew up on a farm. Where the no, no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. In other words, you can sit around and do nothing and have a clean crib and everything seems rosy, but you won't have any increase or profit. Um, profit comes by sometimes being able to make some messes and get into it, get into the work. Um, don't be uh, the people that are just sitting around resting on their lees. Um, uh, I love it when people make um, leaps of faith and do things that are outside of their skill set, and, and then watching what the Lord does, how he intervenes and steps in and he blesses. Um, but all that to say, the Lord indicts these people who are just resting on their lees. Verse 13, therefore their goods shall become a booty and their house is a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. So you can do all this stuff if you want to, but somebody else is gonna live in your house. Somebody else is gonna take your gold and your silver and somebody else is gonna drink your wine. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Um, we looked at this on Sunday. That was that very encouraging verse of Sunday. Um, notice how uh, the King James kind of makes it almost alliterated with a bunch of Ds. It's a day of distress, a day of desolation and darkness. Um, uh, you know what's funny about that is that's the English, but did you know if you go to the Hebrew, um, all the, the negative terms there rhyme. Um, so it's not just the English that sort of seems doom, desolation, destruction. It, it's like that in the Hebrew, except it's not alliteration, it's assonance. It's more the end of the word that matches. If you look up all the words in the, in the Hebrew, um, it seems that Zephaniah is purposefully using that literary form to say, you know, kind of like doom, darkness, you know, uh, desolation. It's the same thing. So it's, it's interesting how the English translation kind of came out the same way the Hebrew translation. These are things you miss unless you're reading from the original Hebrew uh, Bible, but it's kind of interesting, I thought. Well, he goes on in verse 16, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. Now, um, pause just for a second. So the trumpet in Zephaniah's time would be that of signaling of war and troubles coming, the trumpet. But um, in the end times, there are the trumpets. We talked about trumpets uh, in the book of Revelation. 
Now, some people say, well, Brett, you're a pre-tribber and the trump is gonna sound and um, then we're raptured, right? And I'll say, yes. But in the book of Revelation, you got the six trumpets being sounded. Um, that's why I believe the tribulation or the rapture is gonna happen uh, during the trumps of the book of Revelation. Um, you gotta make sure you understand there's a big difference between the first Thessalonians 4:17 trumpet and the Revelation six or 19 trumpets. Um, what's the biggest difference? Um, who blows the trumpets in Revelation? Anybody? Angels. Who blows the trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4? The Lord. It's the trump of the Lord that is blown in the rapture of the church. And then the judgments that are gonna be poured out in the book of Revelation 6 through 19, tribulation period, that's gonna be the trumps of angels being blown. Big difference. So don't confuse them. That's the problem when people confuse those kinds of things. The Bible gives us a very clear distinction. But um, the day of the Lord, which starts with the tribulation period and goes through the millennial kingdom, it's called here a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fence cities and against the high towers. So um, that both in Zephaniah's time, the local application, they would blow the sound of the trumpet, but also um, those angels in the book of Revelation are gonna blow the trumpets of judgment there in uh, tribulation period. Verse 17, and I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither, shall, uh, neither their uh, silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by fire of his jealousy for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. These people are gonna store up their silver and their gold, but it won't be able to help them. Interesting because um, you know people do that today. They store up silver and gold and you can do that if you want to. And maybe before the rapture of the church or if the economy goes really bad, then maybe having gold and stuff, that's great. If you invest that way, it's great. No, no problem with that. But if you've got the mindset, I'm gonna stack gold up so that when everything goes bad during the tribulation, and I'm gonna, you know, the post-tribbers, a lot of post-tribbers are preppers, you know. They're getting their generators and their bunkers and their, their gold and their, their Cheerios all stored up. Um, those people are not gonna be able to use their silver and gold during that time. And if you think about it, you can kind of understand why. If things get that bad, um, you could have all the silver and gold of the world, but things aren't gonna, you know, if you look at some of the Ukrainians right now, they're stuck in some of the worst cities there in Ukraine, it's heartbreaking to see, but you could have all the gold in the world, but if you're stuck in some of those cities, um, there's no supply, there's no food, there's no, people are starving and you could have gold, but you know, now you, Brett, they should have stored food, they should have stored food. Here's the thing though, with your bunker and your guns and stuff, if you get in that situation, which God forbid if you do, but if you do, um, the, the Bible kind of teaches us Christians, we're supposed to love our neighbor and share and do good things. And so if you have food, great, you can share it with other people. How long is that gonna last? Well, that's why I've got my guns. When they come pounding on my door and they say, can I have a bowl of Cheerios? Boom, I'll shoot them dead right there because uh, they can get my Cheerios. Well, that's not really a Christ-like attitude, is it? Um, I just see all kinds of problems, by the way, uh, with some of these ideas of, you know, we're gonna go through the tribulation and so you better get your guns and your gold and your, you know. Um, well, I, I think that it's gonna be so bad if you read the book of Revelation that your gold and your silver, like Zephaniah says here, it's not gonna do you any good. Um, better to be saved and to be raptured before that happens. Now, with all that said, things could get really bad between now and the rapture of the church. Like, you know, it has throughout history. 
Um, but, uh, and so there, there might be wisdom in you know, being able to have food. If, if our, our president told us we're gonna have a really bad food shortage here pretty soon. And now everybody's like, oh yeah, maybe we should start uh, gardening or something. It's like, uh, now you're just thinking about that now. Okay, interesting. Um, food, water, stuff like that. People, yeah, things could go really bad way before the rapture of the church. So some people can store that stuff up if they want to, but we always need to remember to love one another and share. That's part of the deal. By the way, if things got really bad like that before the rapture, that's where I think the church of Jesus Christ comes together and we love on one another and we protect each other. And I think the, the church, one of the things you can see throughout history is when the church was persecuted, the church came, became stronger and they stood with one another and it was, it was kind of an amazing work of God. Um, persecution as painful and brutal as it was throughout church history, often you'd see great revival happen during those times as well. So that's something to think about is, is less than you know, pulling yourself inward and downward in your bunker, maybe saying, how can we be outward during tough times and loving each other and serving one another as church? Be that as it may, they're gold and they're silver, good luck with that. Uh, it's not gonna help you according to that verse. Verse uh, one of chapter two, it says, gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation, not desired, Ooh, that's a bad thing to be called a nation, not desired. That's Israel right now. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So he says, gather yourselves together uh, before all this stuff happens. Um, and verse three, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth. Um, which have wrought his judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Anybody wanna take a stab at when this is gonna happen? When the, the, the Lord's saying, hey, seek the Lord and, and, and maybe the Lord will hid, hide you in the day of the Lord's anger. What, what's that talking about? Anybody wanna take a jump on that? Not the rapture, because we're, um, we're talking specifically to Israel. That should give you a clue when we're talking about the day of the Lord. The, the last part of the tribulation, I heard somebody say that. And where are they gonna be hidden? Does anybody remember? Yes, um, they're gonna be hidden. So, so this is, this is talk, seek the Lord. That's after the abomination of desolation. The, the um, Antichrist is gonna say, you know, worship me and they'll stand there in the temple in Jerusalem. And then the Lord will say, seek me, seek the Lord, um, all ye meek of the earth. Um, seek righteousness, seek meekness. And it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. That's exactly what's gonna happen when the Jews turn to Christ in the middle of the tribulation and they'll flee to what is called Petra. Um, jot this down in your, in your uh, notes, Revelation 12. Um, uh, chapter 12, verse 13. Let me just read it to you real quick. Uh, it says this, and when the dragon saw, this is, a, this is in the middle of the tribulation, when the dragon, which is Satan, saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Who's the woman who brought forth the man-child? Israel brought forth, forth the Messiah, Jesus. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times and a half time from the face of the serpent. What's a time, time and a half time, anybody? Three and a half years. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman to, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed 
which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Um, this is gonna ultimately lead to the battle of Armageddon where Christ comes and rescues the Jews from Antichrist. It's quite a dramatic story. But um, the parallel of Revelation 12, 13 through 17 is Zephaniah, this little section we just read, um, there uh, about um, them seeking the Lord and, and seeking with meekness and then the Lord hiding them and protecting them. And, and uh, that's in Petra. Isaiah chapter 16, by the way, uh, talks about this as well. So um, speaking of the Jews, uh, abomination of desolation, then they shall be hid as it were for a time, time and a half time. That's the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Well, back to Zephaniah two, uh, it says here, verse four, for Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday and Ekron shall be rooted up. Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. And the seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds, folds for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah, and they shall feed there upon the houses of Ashkelon. They shall lie down in the evening, for the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. Interesting, this is talking about that region, the Gaza Strip and the, and the, the five Philistine cities. Um, a few friends of mine and I, we went around there uh, several years back and went to all five uh, Philistine cities, the ruins of them. But Ashkelon, that region down there at the northern tip of the Gaza Strip, um, it, it's beautiful. It, it reminds me of San Diego. It's just a beautiful palm tree, beachy, kind of fun town. Uh, but it, the only problem is Hamas is there. And uh, it's not, you gotta kind of drive an armored vehicle and stuff like that. It's, it's not super safe. And it's where the rockets are constantly flying over the border from Gaza into Israel. Um, interesting, that place did become desolate um, after the Philistines were gone and after the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonians, just like Zephaniah says, but I believe this prophecy is gonna also pertain to the last days where the Lord's gonna leave Gaza a desolation. Isn't it interesting that Gaza's in the news uh, all the time because it's where the Hamas is centered. And Hamas are fully funded by Iranians and they hate Israel. They wanna drive the, the Jews into the, the sea. The Philistines are extinct. They, they, uh, this prophecy was fulfilled um, uh, years, years uh, you know, before um, to where the Philistines no longer exist, which is an important thing because, do you know where the word Palestine came from? It, it was, came after the name Philistine and it was after the Philistines were already extinct. So why did they call it Palestine? Well, they didn't, um, the Jews, but Rome did. It was um, Hadrian, the emperor who hated the Jews and he wanted to spite the Jews. So he renamed Jerusalem Ada Capitolina and he recalled the name of Israel from Israel to Palestina, uh, which later people call Palestine. Now, you can tell a person's worldview about the Arab-Israeli conflict depending on how they, what they call it. You know, like United Airlines, if you look at their maps, I think it's interesting. There's somebody in the United Airlines office who's probably very anti-Israel, and I'll tell you why, because all their maps on United Airlines stuff that I've noticed, it shows, it shows Israel's Palestine. And you're like, oh yeah, somebody's got a little thing there that they, they like to call it, even though it's, we know it's Israel, 
When a person calls it Palestine today, it's usually because they're, um, they're very anti-Jew and stuff like that. That's just something you can know for a freebie. But it was called Palestine by the Romans. It officially became Israel uh, again on May 14th, 1948, and people should call it what it's, what it's called. Be that as it may, um, I believe that happened both historically and it's also gonna happen again. The Gaza Strip's gonna be wiped out. Wouldn't be a good place to live during the day of the Lord, according to Ze- uh, Zephaniah. Well, um, it says here, um, verse eight, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the re- uh, revilings of the children of Ammon, um, whereby they have reproached my people and uh, magnified themselves against their border. Who was the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites? Anybody remember? Lot, remember that story of the cave? Did I need to bring that one up again? Uh, these people became horrible enemies of Israel. Verse nine, therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even as the breeding of nettles and salt pits, a perpetual desolation, the residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This uh, shall they have for their pride because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be a terrible, uh, a terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth and men shall worship him, everyone from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Man, he, he gives a harsh word against the Ammonites and the Moabites. Um, and he talks about how there'll be salt pits and reminds me of Lot's wife. You know, did you see the Babylon Bee, the article where the, it shows the family running away from Disneyland and the, the mom looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. Uh, <laughs> Genius, man, you gotta, you gotta admit. Anyways, verse 12. You Ethiopians also, uh, you shall be slain by my sword and he will stretch out his hand against the north and the destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation and, a, and dry like a wilderness. And flocks shall lie down in the midst of her and all the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant, uh, and the bittern shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be in their thresholds for he shall uncover the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly and said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passes by her shall hiss and wag his hand. Um, the idea of hissing is whistling in astonishment. They're going to walk by and say, wow, that's amazing. That it's so desolate. Now you say, okay, Brett, what's this all about? Well, that, um, we're talking about um, the enemies of Israel and the way that they're, they're going to be handled during both the time of Zephaniah, but also in the end times. And we can even talk about Ethiopia and that, what was the biblical region of Ethiopia. It's not really what it is today as much as a lot of that you know, um, northeastern side of Africa, which is gonna be somewhat joined in the Gog-Magog invasion. So some of these, you can make correlations. And Nineveh, of course, we've talked about that um, near uh, Mosul in Iraq. Um, These are places that are gonna be desolate uh, during the time of the day of the Lord. But then we go back to Jerusalem in verse one of chapter three. um, And it says here in Zephaniah three, it says, woe, unto her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. 
Um, this is a sad thing to call Jerusalem that because Jerusalem's supposed to be the city of the Lord, you know. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Boy, there's three things here that are good checkpoints for yourself. Are you a person who, number one, does not receive correction? Number two, do you not trust in the Lord? And number three, do you not really care about drawing near to the Lord? These are the three attributes of the people of Jerusalem. The Lord says, you know, you're toast. Um, that first one is really hard. Are, are you a person that doesn't receive correction? Boy, that's something I've noticed in modern days. People are so overly sensitive to receiving correction. Um, it's, it's almost becoming a rare thing to have somebody who actually can, can take advice from someone, even someone who loves them dearly. Um, as soon as you start offering advice, you're, you're evil. Uh, you know, don't be the boss. You're not the boss of me. And I can, I'm the director of myself. And uh, that's just a horrible way to live. Um, we all need to be people that are uh, receiving correction and good counsel and, and uh, wisdom. Hopefully you have two or three or four people in your life that you will listen to. If they come to you and say, man, there's something I need to tell you. And, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you don't have some friend that wounds you from time to time, then you may not have a real friend. You might think about that for a second. Um, th there's gotta be that in your life. And, and, um, and don't be a person who's so easily offended by someone giving you a word of correction. Um, by the way, that's one of the things that a word of prophecy can be. It's a word of edification, exhortation, and comfort. But that exhortation part is that part that's saying, man, here's what you need to do. And the question is, are you gonna listen to it? The Jews didn't wanna hear it from anybody. They received not correction, they didn't trust the Lord, and they were not drawing near the Lord. And so the Lord says, man, you're the oppressing, polluted, filthy city. That's what he calls it. Verse three, her princes or politicians, you might say, within her are roaring lions. Her judges are ravening wolves, uh, or evening wolves. Um, they gnaw not the bones till the, uh, till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Um, that means they've tweaked the word, just like some people have done violence to the word of God in modern day. Um, I'd say <clears throat> the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witness, violence to the word of God. The Book of Mormon, violence to the word of God. We gotta keep the word the word and guard that. Um, the just, verse five, uh, the just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. Boy, we're seeing that today where the unjust knoweth no shame. We march in pride of our sinfulness. We're proud of our sin these days. And that's the situation. Um, you know, it's interesting that the just Lord is in the midst thereof um, and, and he will not do iniquity. That's an interesting phrase. One thing that I do love about the Lord is if there's ever mercy to be found, um, you can find it with the Lord. I'm reminded of that beautiful verse in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. So even in the day of the Lord, there's gonna be people who, even though they're faithless, the Lord is still faithful. And I love that about our Lord. But the people that are just all out in rebellion, man, the Lord's gonna judge. Quickly, verse six, I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passeth by their cities, uh, their, their cities are destroyed. 
um, so that there is no man, there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou will fear me. Wilt thou receive instruction? So their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured uh, with the fire of my jealousy. Does anybody know what that time period is called? The battle of, yeah, Armageddon. I mean, this, when does the Lord gather all the nations and show his fury? It's there where the nations will be gathered in the Valley of Megiddo, as it's called there. Uh, and this is what's talking about us. This is again where, you know, Zedekiah, you can apply a lot of the stuff um, that Zedekiah says to the first uh, round of prophecy locally, but some of this stuff never happened during the time of Zephaniah. Um, like the gathering of all the nations. This is where his gaze goes past to the day of the Lord at the end. Are you guys with me on that? And there's another one here that's kind of interesting, verse nine. For then will I turn the people a pure, uh, to, to, the, to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my su uh, suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed shall bring mine offering. Notice in verse nine, I will, I will turn the people to a pure language. This is where I was talking about the bringing back of Hebrew. <clears throat> now, it's interesting because I told you, uh, I think on Sunday that, you know, Hebrew was a lost um, language and it was, <clears throat> but um, it, it, uh, the language, the revival of the Hebrew language took place in Europe and Palestine, as they called it back, you know, before as Israel, um, uh, toward the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. And, and um, so all these Jews were moving to what was then called Palestine, but it was eventually that guy, Ben Yehuda, I talked about, who brought the language back and they started speaking Hebrew again. But what's interesting is um, the, the Hebrew scholars in Jerusalem say, oh, but we're not speaking the purest form of Hebrew. We're speaking more of a modern Hebrew now. Um, and, and we've lost the purest form. Um, maybe that's true. And maybe this prophecy is not just the revival of the Hebrew uh, language in the last days, but maybe uh, after the um, battle of Armageddon, the millennial kingdom kicks into gear, maybe that's when the purest form of Hebrew will be spoken once again. That's something just to kind of tuck away so you're not a tourist when you're in the millennial kingdom. Oh, this is the language of the pure Hebrew. Uh, you'll be able to you know, guide instead of be a tourist. Um, when they start speaking the purest form of Hebrew. So, um, so uh, there's a couple things here that we, we got to sort of notice. Um, here in uh, verse nine and 10, he's basically calling the people to come back from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Um, my daughter of my dispersed, that's the word diaspora, by the way. Remember when the Jews were scattered all over the world? They were dispersed, diaspora. Well, he says he'll bring together my offering back to Jerusalem. This is the regathering. So if you're taking notes of this final section, this is where, I love really verses uh, eight and onward here in Zephaniah, because this is where we start to see that glimmer of light. It's been pretty doom and gloom thus far, wouldn't you agree? 
But this is where the light starts popping through. And, and number one, if you could jot this down, is the regathering of Israel. After they're judged in the Zephaniah's time and scattered all over the world for centuries, the Lord says, I will regather them there in verse 10, uh, nine and 10. He's talking about the pure language and the regathering of the people. That's number one. But then um, now in verses 11 through 13, he shows us the repenting. Number two, the repenting of Israel. Let's take a look. Verse 11, it says, in that day shall, not, uh, shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. Remember, remember we were talking about abortion and the shame that's associated with that, the guilt? This is the way the Jews are gonna feel, guilt and shame, but don't you love that? I, I've marked that in my Bible, verse 11. In that day shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed. That's because the Lord forgives and they not only just transgressed in general, it says they've transgressed against me. Verse 11 continues, for then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people that they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall be a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down and none shall make them afraid. This is something that's gonna happen during the millennial kingdom when the Jews will see Christ as the Messiah, they'll be saved and the Lord will protect them and bless them. That's the repenting of Israel, verses 11 through 13. Then in verse 14 and 15, we have the rejoicing of Israel. Check this out. Verse 14, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all thine heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy, the King of Israel, even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. Is this talking about the local application of Zephaniah or the millennial kingdom? See, this is, you see what I'm saying? This is clearly the millennial kingdom because um, there's no time in history where this has ever happened, verse 14 and 15, but it will happen when the Lord is on the throne. That's what it says here. So what, what should the Jews rejoice about? When the king is reigning on the throne in the millennial kingdom. That's verses 14 and 15, the rejoicing of Israel during the millennial reign of Christ. And then the fourth and final section here uh, is uh, 16 through 20, the redeemer. We'll, we'll talk more about the redeemer of Israel. Verse uh, 16, in that day shall it be said to Jerusalem, fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Now pause right there. That verse right there is worth... Uh, uh, you could meditate on, think about that for months. Um, we don't have time to really, would you just meditate on that verse? Because this is what's gonna happen in the millennial kingdom. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. Um, and he will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. What makes Jesus joyful? Um, when he sees the Jews repentant and believing and following him during the millennial kingdom, the Lord's gonna rejoice over the Jews with, uh, um, with joy, it says here. He will rest in his own love, not in their love for him. He's gonna rest, he's gonna be, have that confident contentment from his own love for his own people. 
This is a radical description of Christ ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom. Um, we used to sing a song to this. Did anybody remember this song? The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, is mighty. Is, no, I'm the only one who remember. Okay, going back, that one goes back to only like the 1960s or so. Uh, but it's a, good, it's a good way to memorize that one. Um, anyway, he goes on, verse 18, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time, I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth and gather her that was driven out. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put, into, uh, put to shame. At that time, will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth, when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. People in the world that are anti-Semitic and say God is done with the Jews, they have to call Zephaniah a liar, that he didn't know what he was talking about. Because the last few verses of this is really clear. The Lord's gonna rejoice when the Jews repent. And he says, I will regather them and I will regather them in the land. And you know, we've seen so much of that already. We're seeing this gathering happen in our lifetime. What a profound prophecy to be alive, to, to watch. It's, it's so crazy that we've, it's become normal. Like, like nobody even thinks it's any big deal. Oh, the Jews, yeah, a bunch of Jews are moving to Israel. <laughs> like it's no big deal. But you and I should be like, God is real. God exists. Who was it? I forget who it was that said, um, they, they were asked, uh, you know, a, a thinker kind of person, you know, um, give us uh, evidence that God exists. And he says, I will give you two words. He said, the Jews. And it's true. If you look at what happened with the Jews, the di diaspora, just like the Bible said, scattered all over the world for 2000 years, only to be regathered in our lifetime and watch Israel become a nation again. And the stage perfectly set for the millennial kingdom right now, is that just a coincidence? Nope, it's a Godowince. God has done all these things and he's orchestrating these events. And you know, there's gonna be a lot of people who were anti-Semitic, nations that were anti-Semitic, and they will have to answer to God at the judgment of the sheep and the goats. The Bible talks about how you treated Israel. That's what's gonna happen. The judgment of the sheep and goats, you'll be rewarded accordingly or punished accordingly. So um, that's why I always hope that the United States is a supporter of Israel. I will bless the nations that bless Israel. I will curse the nations that curse Israel. That stuff's still true today. And it's happening right before our eyes, the fulfillment of these prophecies. Pretty cool stuff. So you can see why the book of Zephaniah is pretty heavy, but that last part, the God, the, the God of all, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is gonna bring his people um, and rule and reign over them in Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. That's the glorious promise of the book of Zephaniah. So there you have it, book of Zephaniah. And man, we're blazing through these. We only got a few pages left in the Old Testament. Uh, we need to have like a little party or something after when we get through the <laughs> Old Testament, like, like just a few pages. So uh, pretty exciting uh, times here at Athey Creek. Well, Lord, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for the book of Zephaniah to know that you keep your promises with your people, to know you have a plan for them and, and that you will rejoice over them with, um, with singing, that you, you, you will rest in your love for them. Lord, I pray that we would rest in your love because you've been so kind and merciful and compassionate, gracious and forgiving of our sins, Lord. We're so thankful for that. Lord, I do lift up those that have feel, felt guilty of their sins and even 
plagued by the guilt that goes along with sin. And I pray that as Christians, Lord, we just lay our burden at the foot of your cross. How thankful we are that you tell us that you will take our sins and put them as far as the east is from the west and remember them no more. That we don't have to be condemned. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we, we thank you for your love, Lord. I pray that each person in this room, each person watching online who knows you and has believed in the cross, um, Lord, may they be protected from that guilt, that shame from sin. Lord, may they hunger and thirst after righteousness, even as we've read your word tonight. So bless these who've taken this time tonight to study your word. We bless you in Jesus' name, amen.